I've already heard at least three of you tell me this morning that I look very Southern today. So, not sure if that's a compliment or not. Um, I have a, a good friend who a year ago went to General Assembly, and uh, we are somewhat of a Southern denomination, and he has a seersucker jacket. And so he wore it at General Assembly, and then wore it the next Sunday at his home church in Northern California. And uh, somebody came up to him after uh, the service and said, I've never seen you in costume before. It is different, but it is good uh, to be home. It is good to be back and uh, have very much missed uh, being here and I'm uh, very glad not to be driving. So we did 2,800 miles in 14 days. So that's a bunch. If you'll get out your sermon outline, it's called Promises and Blessings. And we are going to pick up at Genesis 47, verse 13, and carry it all the way through to the end of Genesis 48. So a very long passage today. I'm going to have to move this over a little bit. There we go. And because it's so long, we'll read it as uh, we go through. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to a long and difficult passage this morning, and so I ask that you would use it to give us wisdom and to lead us towards righteousness and help us to learn from the example of Jacob and his undying trust on his dying day. Give us the courage to have faith in your promises and to believe the promised blessings. And for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn once again from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1970, a few years ago, the rock supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young at the time, my favorite group, came out with this popular song called Teach Your Children. It was written by Graham Nash, actually, when he was a member of the Hollies, but it was never recorded by that group. It first appeared on uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's first album, Deja Vu. The album they had done before that was just Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So they added Neil Young. So it was either their second or first album, depending on whether or not you count Neil Young. And this particular song features Jerry Garcia on pedal steel guitar. And he had made an agreement, an arrangement with the group that in return for playing pedal steel guitar on Teach Your Children, that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young would come and meet with the members of his group, the Grateful Dead, and teach them how to sing harmony. So if you would uh, sort of draw that line in 1970, Grateful Dead sounds different after 1970 than they did before, and now you know why. 
But the song, Teach Your Children, was addressed to the freewheeling hippie generation of the late 60s and early 70s, which tried to cast off all the restraints and rules of their parents' generation. And while the song reflects somewhat noble intentions, I always thought there's a great deal of irony reflected in it in that this completely rebellious generation, the baby boomers in their teens and 20s, would somehow succeed in teaching their children where their parents had failed. And I'm afraid that my generation succeeded in teaching our children all too well. See, we taught them that a lifelong commitment in marriage is outdated. We taught them to cast off the traditional roles of uh, husband and wife, not to mention mother and father. We taught them to do whatever feels good. Whatever impulse that came to them, our mantra was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the only one of those that we caught a lot of grief about was the rock and roll. And so we taught them to feel good about themselves while they walked out on their marriages and coped with all of their addictions. And if you look carefully at all of the follow-on generations, the Busters, the Gen Xers, Gen Y, the Millennials, whichever labels you prefer, much of what has come to characterize them has largely been a reaction to what they learned, both good and bad, from the baby boomers. And so while my generation largely failed Parenting 101 because we cast off God's standards, the theme of the song is still true. We will teach our children. And God's word says, God's word insists that we must teach our children well. See, the family is at the center of God's purpose. It's primarily in the family that a godly heritage is handed down from generation to generation. And God chose Abraham and promised to give him a family and from that family to make a nation which would bless all the other nations. And Abraham's family was the foundation of Israel from which the Savior came. And so in Genesis 48, which we're going to focus on, we see Abraham's grandson, Jacob, handing on his godly heritage to his son, Joseph, and to his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. In fact, he adopts Joseph's two sons as his own, blessing Joseph through them. And one reason this chapter is here is to explain why Joseph isn't listed as one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He got a double inheritance through his two sons who were adopted by Jacob. And out of all of the events uh, that are recorded of Jacob's very long life, the author of Hebrews selects this episode as his example of Jacob's faith. Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob had not yet received the fulfillment of God's promises. But he blessed these two young men, believing that God would keep his word through them. And in that act of faith, we see Jacob imparting to his son and his grandsons the most important thing that he could possibly give them, which was faith in the promises of God. And that's what this story in Genesis 47 and 48 is all about. It's about a desperate family in a difficult time uh, who are having uh, to deal with 
great promises, though yet unfulfilled. And so it's about faith and blessings. So let's turn to Genesis 47, starting at verse 13. We'll see how this story plays out. It starts with a very serious problem. And that problem is the problem of famine. The problem of famine. Starting at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So Pharaoh prospers as Joseph effects a plan that basically nationalized both the land and the livestock and turned the Egyptians into tenant farmers or serfs. Because Joseph had created these great stores of grain, the famine brought the people to purchase rations from his storehouses. And soon Joseph had all the money and deposited all the money of Egypt and the surrounding countries into the treasury of Pharaoh. And so when the money dried up, the people brought their livestock and essentially bartered uh, their livestock for food. Now, whether the livestock were actually exchanged for grain or were mortgaged isn't clear, although mortgaging would have been more practical. seems that that's most likely the case. In any event, after a few years, Pharaoh owns all of the money all of the livestock in Egypt. And next we see, starting with verse 18, he gets all the land. It says, And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? So Pharaoh gets the land, and tenant farming becomes the norm. And at this point, the people have given up everything. They've given up all their money, they've given up all their livestock, and they've given up all their land. But it's not quite everything because they still had themselves, and they're about to give that up. See, the ultimate uh, solution, the, the problem of famine is ultimately answered by the solution of slavery. The solution of slavery. Starting again, verse 19. Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people... 
he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So inevitably, all the people become Pharaoh's servants. In short order, all of Egypt, except for the pagan clergy, were serfs, indentured servants, essentially slaves. And Pharaoh, in this time of great famine and great distress, has become enormously prosperous. And of course, given the alternative of starvation, you could argue that all of Egypt has become prosperous because they're not starving to death. But as the Hebrew commentator Nahum Sarna explains, Joseph's actions can't be measured by the moral standards that the Hebrew Bible, especially the prophetic tradition, has instilled in Western civilization. They must be judged in the context of the ancient Near Eastern world by whose norms Joseph emerges here as an admirable model of a shrewd and successful administrator. Nonetheless, a moral judgment on the situation is subtly introduced into the narrative by shifting the burden of responsibility for the fate of the people from Joseph to the Egyptians themselves. The people initiate the idea of their own enslavement and then express gratitude when it's implemented. And now, as royal serfs, the Egyptians have to pay 20% to the crown, which was a normal percentage, even low uh, in its day. 40% was not uncommon. There's records of it being as high as 60%. But the happy result is, uh, in Egypt, the coffers are overflowing with wealth. The economy is now doing well, as it's run by Pharaoh. And even though the famine uh, worsens, everyone in Egypt gets fed. And nobody complains about the 20%. And Joseph becomes Egypt's national hero because they all think they would have been dead without him. And Pharaoh enjoys unparalleled prosperity. And most astonishingly of all, even tiny little Israel prospers, starting at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now to emphasize how extraordinary Israel's prosperity is, the story uses brief descriptions of Israel's acquiring possessions to bracket the story of Pharaoh's prosperity. The initial brackets back in verse 11 Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land. And then it closes here in verse 27 again, emphasizing Israel's accumulation of possessions. 
So the problem is now all of Egypt is in this serfdom, this uh, sort of indentured slavery, and little Israel's prosperity is far outstripping the average Egyptian. So not only did they gain possessions, but their fruitful multiplied greatly, both during the famine and afterwards. And so from the beginning, Israel flourished so much that one day it would force their persecution and exodus. The Genesis scholar John Walton says, the time in Egypt is not an interruption of the covenant, but an incubation of the covenant people. What Israel experiences in miniature in Egypt is a foretaste of the blessings of Canaan when the land and the wealth would be theirs. Here in Egypt, their abundance was all of God, as it would be in the fulfillment of the covenant. The other little note we have here is significantly, Jacob has 17 years, the text tells us, with his son Joseph, which is exactly the same number of years they had together in Canaan before Joseph was betrayed and sold. And Genesis is silent about these last 17 years, but this sort of fast forward to his age of 147 years suggests there's sort of this unruffled tranquility for both father and son and how sweet that must have been for Jacob. It's probably the only time in his life that it was sort of tranquil and peaceful, um, mostly because he wasn't off doing stupid things. Um, but these years, no doubt, were also used by God to prepare Joseph for the further role that he would have. And we're meant to see all of this as God's careful doing. This duplicate periods of 17 years is, is a way that the author Moses uses to say there's no accidents here. It's not just a coincidence. God's planning all this out. So the situation is the Egyptian people have become serfs, a form of slavery, and the Israelite people have become prosperous. But that doesn't last. Because over the next generations, and particularly after Joseph, the Egyptians would come to bitterly resent the Israelites, and in time, they would make the Israelites their slaves too. In fact, the theme verse of the entire Joseph story, we've said many times, Joseph 50, verse 20, or Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And it's easy for us to focus on that verse, but miss what comes right before it in verse 18 when his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Many uh, translations, many versions of the Bible translate that verse, we are your slaves. And so at first it looks like slavery is just the predicament of the Egyptians. The reality, it's the living environment of all people, including the Israelites. And facing that future, it would be very easy to forget God and forget God's word and forget God's promises. That's the scenario that's been laid out. Pharaoh's rich. Everybody else lives in total debt to Pharaoh. But Jacob, this is the crowning moment of his life. It's the very end of his life. We're at the last day or two of his life. And he remembers God. And he remembers the promise of kindness, of God's kindness. Starting in verse 29. 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, remember Israel, Jacob, his name was changed. He called his son Joseph and said to him, if I have now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, if we back up in the story, when Jacob first heard the news that Joseph was alive, he was 130 years old. And he thought he was about to die. But when he found out Joseph was alive, it says he was revived. And he lives for another 17 years. But now the end is near. And Jacob so wanted to be buried in Canaan, in the same cave with the bones of Abraham and Isaac, that he doubly binds his uh, viceroy, prime minister's son, to personally take his bones back to Canaan. And he consciously imitates Abraham. Back in Genesis 24, Abraham made his servant Eliezer place his hand under his thigh and swear he wouldn't take a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. Here, after getting Joseph to swear he wouldn't bury him in Egypt, he asks for a second oath that essentially, in effect, places Joseph under God's wrath should he break his promise. So this oath calls for this sort of intense life and death resolve. And upon Joseph's oath, the old patriarch, 147-year-old Jacob, bows as best as he can, and he worships. Now, why do we have this desperate demand for assurance that his bones be buried back in Canaan, back in the promised land? Certainly, Jacob knew no matter where he died, he would go to his father's. The reason for the demand is that burying his remains in Canaan is a declaration of faith in the promise of God that the land would go to Abraham and his seed forever as it was originally promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. And by saying, take me back there, he's saying, I believe you're going to put me in the land that God has promised us forever. It's a great statement of faith. If you remember, Abraham had purchased the tomb for Sarah in faith. And then he himself had been buried next to her in faith. All along saying, we're buried here right in the center of Canaan because someday this land is going to be ours. And their Isaac's bones had been laid alongside theirs in faith. And like them, Jacob, in faith, looks to this ultimate prosperity. And not only does he have faith in the promises of God, he passes that faith on to the next generation in the form of a blessing. In Genesis 49, he would make some very specific and very deliberate blessings for his son. But in this specific case, in Genesis 48, he really is dealing with his grandsons. And he gives them the blessing of God's presence. The blessing of God's presence, Genesis 48. I'm going to read the whole chapter straight through. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz 
in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. <laughs> as for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So the occasion of Jacob's blessing comes about when Joseph, who remembers his viceroy prime minister's son, learned that he's ill, says that he's ill. By the way, that's the first reference to illness in the Bible. And with immense resolve, this dying patriarch sat up in his bed. And though there's no act other than the blessing recorded here, the Hebrews 11 reference describes it as worship. That's because to believe God's word and to base everything in the future upon his word is, in fact, worship. And Joseph came to his dying father with his two half-Egyptian sons in expectation of obtaining the patriarch's blessing. Joseph's presence in and of itself is an act of faith. 
He's coming to personally identify his boys with God's people. Remember, they're half Egyptian. And such identification with the shepherd clan, shepherds are hated by Egyptians, would ultimately shut them off from any prominence in Egypt. And so Joseph's presence with his sons is actually an exercise of great faith. And as Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim stand there expectantly before Jacob, the patriarch recalls the promises that undergirded what he's about to do. God had appeared to Jacob twice, both at Bethel. The first appearance was in Genesis 28, when Jacob was fleeing the wrath of Esau. And God gave him a heavenly vision of angels uh, ascending and descending on his behalf, accompanied by the promise of the land and offspring like the dust of the earth. The second appearance was 20 years later, again at Bethel in Genesis 35. And so the uh, affirmation of the promises at Bethel echo all of the words of the promises made to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. And it also reflect the creation uh, mandate of Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply. And the point of Jacob's recollection of all these promises is that as heir to the promises, he had the right to decide to whom they would go with his blessing. This is a moment of immense power. Jacob's covenant recollections are filled with faith that God would fulfill the promises through him. And then something very interesting happens. Having established his authority to bestow this blessing, he informs Joseph as of his intentions. Look at verse 5. He says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. The little Hebrew reads, Like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. That is, these boys will become the firstborn sons of Jacob. Ephraim and Manasseh would become not Jacob's grandsons, but sons number one and number two. They displace Reuben and Simeon. First Chronicles 5 describes what happens. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. He basically takes the two grandsons and adopts them and moves them to the front of the line and replaces son number one and two. This astonishing revelation, Jacob claims them twice as mine basically as replacements for their senior uncles. Now Joseph has other children besides Ephraim and Manasseh. What about them? And Jacob anticipates that question in verse 6. He says, And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So all of his other children will be incorporated into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he blesses them, but he reverses the blessing. We've seen this many times uh, in Genesis. He puts the younger before the older, just as he had put in front of his older brother. 
And Jacob can't reverse it even if he wants to, and he doesn't wish to change a word because the blessing doesn't originate with him but with God. He's only the messenger, and his crossed hands of blessing are actually another act of profound faith. It's a divine assessment. And this is the act that we read about in Hebrews 11, where it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. It's taken Jacob a lifetime of God's divine discipline to learn that he has to speak and do the work of God. And he has to speak the word of God. <clears throat> so now he's daring to trust God and believe that God's plans are best. So this old patriarch, driven by faith, continues with his right hand firmly placed on the head of the younger son. And we see these crossed hands of blessing. And clearly understand, at the end of Jacob's life, in the end of the book of Genesis, that God's grace must never become captive to position or privilege or heredity or expectation or tradition or convention or even disposition. God's grace is sovereign. It cannot be tamed. The economy of grace operates on its own principles, humbling human wisdom, exalting the unlikely, so that the last are often the first, and the first are often the last. Which, of course, is what Jesus himself said in Matthew 19. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All of this calls for faith, both for salvation and for living. And just as Jacob pulled back from trusting his own wisdom and his own preferences and started trusting God's word, so must we. God calls us to trust in him alone. That's what Jacob's doing here on the last day of his life. And this is where he experiences the pleasure and praise of God as recorded in the book of Hebrews. Now, a couple of days ago, I wrote to you uh, that in the Joseph story so far, God providentially paved the way for Joseph's family to move to Egypt. And in a time of famine, uh, Jacob's family is welcomed there where food and land were made available to him. And Joseph, if you remember, gave them advice, said, when you meet Pharaoh, don't tell him you're a shepherd. Nobody likes shepherds here. Tell him you tend the livestock. You know, the sort of politically correct version. And of course, they got up there and said, we're shepherds. And you can see Joseph like, no, what are they thinking? You know, perhaps they're thinking the Egyptians might not like shepherds. But the fact is, that's what they were. And it's an encouragement to them. It's not an embarrassment. And in this blessing, Jacob speaks of the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. We give a godly heritage by recounting to our children and grandchildren our own experiences with God. It assumes, of course, that we're walking with God. And Jacob has certainly gone through his ups and downs, but through it all, he walked with God. And Joseph comes to see him on his deathbed, and he recalls how God had appeared to him at Bethel and the promises that God has made. And when he saw his sons, he expressed his gratitude that he not only got to see Joseph, but he got to see Joseph's two sons. And as he blesses his grandsons, he tells them that God has been his shepherd all his life to that day. And he tells them that God will be with them. And in blessing his grandsons, Jacob recounts God's faithfulness and goodness once again. 
Now, if you were a refugee shepherd and had two grandsons who'd been raised in the palace in the most advanced nation on earth, what kind of future would you hope for these boys? It would have been so natural for Jacob to wish for them all the privileges that the court of Egypt offered. They had all the comforts of wealth. They had all the opportunities for power and prestige. And I wonder what their mother thought. Remember, she was an Egyptian. You know, I think she probably would have been horrified to learn that her sons were being identified with those despised shepherds of Israel rather than with the high political circles of Egypt. You're throwing away your career in Egypt for what? I actually don't think Egyptian moms are all that different than Jewish moms or any other moms. You're doing what? But by faith, Jacob pictured for these grandsons a future in which they're identified with the covenant people of God. Jacob believed God for the fulfillment of things not yet seen. And the point is Jacob pictures a great future in the Lord for his children and his grandchildren, a future that involves the fulfillment of God's promises. And the most important heritage we can hand down to our children and grandchildren is faith in the promises of God. The shepherd God is an encouragement to those who are part of his flock. David would write, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. And it may not sound good to others, but shepherd is supposed to sound good to God's people. Ultimately, that's the blessing for God's people. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That's the story you need to tell your children and grandchildren over and over. They need to know that you were once lost in sin, that you were a lost sheep, but that God sent a good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he found you and saved you and brought you home to be part of his flock. They need to know that they need a shepherd too, and they need to know that the shepherd they need is the same shepherd you needed. And so by faith, tell them, about that shepherd. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Oh, Lord, our Lord, we thank you for the story of your servant, Jacob. We thank you for his testimony in the face of his own death. We thank you for the kindness of your providence. We pray we would learn these lessons about trusting you. Teach us the lesson of hoping in you, even in the presence of earthly blessing. Lord, keep us from being satisfied with the things of this world, that you would grant us divine dissatisfaction with temporary things, that we might learn to rejoice in eternal blessings, now and forever. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.